Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Paul Munnies has been following the latest revenue estimates that lawmakers will be using to craft the state's budget for fiscal year 2025. Paul, how much do lawmakers have to spend this time? Yeah, so the the State Board of Equalization met recently, and um, they basically gave a new certified estimate for the fiscal year 2025 budget for lawmakers to start crafting that. And they kind of came up with a number of $8.58 billion dollars. Uh, which is another $58 million than they expected from the last estimates back in December. And then adding another all the other authorized funds that come into that, a total of uh, $11.13 billion that they've basically said lawmakers can have and recurring expenditures to put craft budget with. So the state has some leftover cash from previous years, right? Stitt's talked about that a lot. That's right. Yeah. And, and so the last few years, they've come in higher than estimates. And so they've got some leftover cash after they did the, the crafted previous year's budgets. And so they actually have the last three years or so, they've combined to now have uh, basically leftover cash and one-time revenue available of about $2.7 billion, uh, which includes about $2.4 billion in previous year's general revenue estimate over uh, estimates as well. So what happened at the Board of Equalization meeting? Yeah, so the Board of Equalization meeting is, is made up of uh, seven members. It's a very fascinating kind of number of, of executive officials. The governor is there, lieutenant governor, attorney general, the state auditor, uh, the state superintendent of public instruction, um, and the treasurer and agricultural commissioner. And so they seven, seven people get a report on estimates. They discuss with uh, staff on terms of how they're, they're setting up all the budget stuff. And uh, it's very interesting to kind of watch some of the discussions. In fact, there was some uh, discussion this past year or this past meeting with the attorney general had some questions about income tax estimates and um, the kind of uh, estimates they were putting on oil and gas revenues as well and the, the price of, of oil per barrel and the price of gas uh, per thousand cubic feet to craft the budget, which is a very kind of volatile part of the state's revenue picture. Not everybody agrees on the numbers, though, do they? No, like like everything else, um, you kind of see a lot of discussion on like, well, is this really one time or recurring revenue or can we put this into uh, special funds just for one time use? Uh, and so there's a lot of discussion there. And in fact, uh, the Senate kind of thinks it's got about uh, $337 million more than last year to work with. Um, and the House thinks it's way more than that, maybe closer to half a billion dollars. Uh, the governor is kind of on the same page as the House and thinks there's quite a bit more as well. Now, uh, Republicans, uh, right, in the uh, governor's office, they also have super majorities in the legislature, yet they differ on uh, revenue and tax cuts. Why is that? Yeah, we thought maybe this uh, meeting would give some clarity to some of the discussions that's been happening uh, since last year in terms of tax cuts. Um, the governor and, and the House are very committed to a quarter point income tax reduction uh, for everybody. Um, and then they're also somewhat uh, amenable to the uh, the elimination of the state share of the grocery tax, sales tax. 
Um, the Senate says it's kind of one or the other, basically. You can choose one or the other. Uh, it's, it's interesting to note there's active bills uh, that could go, if they get to vote in the Senate, um, to, to do both of those things, to do the core point income tax cut uh, and the elimination of the, the state grocery sales tax. Um, but it hasn't been put up for a vote yet. And so their pressure is kind of mounting on, on the Senate and pro tem Greg Treat on that front. In fact, there's about um, maybe half a dozen or so, sorry, a dozen or so uh, senators that have said, we're going to vote for a tax cut if they put it up. And so uh, it remains to be seen if you can get to that 21 or 22 threshold um, that would need to, to kind of get his caucus uh, on board with that. Now, the Senate started a new budget process this year. How are they doing things differently? That's right. They've, they've started looking at things a little bit more holistically in terms of getting the subcommittees for their appropriations and budget uh, areas ready to go. And in fact, this, the pro tem has given pretty wide latitude to these subcommittee chairs for appropriation and budgets. And basically, they're, they've brought in all the agencies as they normally do this time of year and before session starts even, uh, and basically said, look, this is the amount that we kind of possibly have to spend on these, exec- these agencies. Uh, and they're leaving it basically up to each subcommittee chairman to take that then to the full committee to vote on budget resolutions that will then go to the Senate floor. Um, and then by probably March or so, the Senate kind of hopes to have a starting point for negotiations with the House over what to do with the budget. Uh, so it's, it's a little more involved process on the Senate side. The House says they'll take a look at whatever the Senate comes up with, but doesn't really know why they can't start negotiating before that point. Uh, so there's still a lot of discussion, but uh, Senate Pro Tem Greg Treat thinks that this is a better way to, to do the budget in a more transparent manner. Well, this year, what else are you keeping an eye on on the budget? Yeah, obviously, the tax cuts are going to be continuing to drive that uh, train a little bit on discussion on what to do with the leftover revenue. They're still going to look at a lot of um, what to do with the savings. We've, we're pretty flush with our, our rainy day fund, and there's another legacy fund that's also very uh, got some cash for it. Uh, and then there's still some questions about how the state is going to deal with some of the backlog on infrastructure uh, and, and all the various assets the state has. And so that's been a continuing discussion, especially on the higher ed side. They're, they're, they're really not asking for much in terms of a higher budget other than maybe some repair money to repair some of their buildings and other things. So we're looking for that as well in this, as discussions move forward on the budget. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read Paul's coverage of uh, the budget and the amount of money the legislature has to work with this year, as well as all his other coverage of state government. You'll find it all on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Keaton Ross covers criminal justice and democracy at Oklahoma Watch. In his latest Democracy Watch newsletter, he wrote about a proposal moving through the Oklahoma legislature that would ban ranked choice voting statewide. Keaton, what is ranked choice voting? Ranked choice voting is a uh, preference-based voting system where instead of choosing one candidate on a ballot, Uh, Voters are asked to rank candidates by preference. So say there's five candidates, you would rank those candidates one through five, and then that would go through a narrowing process until one candidate receives a majority of votes uh, as that's tallied. Now, uh, what states and and municipalities around the country have, have adopted that method? Only a few states are doing it in their statewide elections. Uh, Alaska is one example. Um, there was a state question that that passed there, and that was implemented a few years ago. Um, but it's more widely used at the local municipal level. Um, 
places like New York City, San Francisco, um, even Utah. There was a bill in Utah's legislature a few years ago allowing uh, municipalities there to utilize ranked choice voting. Um, so uh, a few states and, and dozens of municipalities, uh, it's caught on in, in some regions across the country. Well, what are some of the arguments in favor of that ranked choice voting system? One of the main arguments is that in uh, in the case of ranked choice voting, where it's not winner take all and, um, you know, two candidates going at it most of the time, um, the argument is that the there will be more of an appeal to a wider range of voters, um, less personal attacks, more uh, discussion focused on the issues because the candidate isn't going to get a first place vote from a certain block of voters or is likely not to get that first place vote. They'll want a second or third place vote um, just based on how the method works. Um, so those who support it say it would make elections a lot uh, more civil and focused on policy and, and ultimately uh, benefit voters in that way. Now, there are some Oklahoma lawmakers uh who really don't like this. They support banning that method of voting statewide. Um, why is that? Their main argument uh, that that I've heard in some of these committee hearings and um, studies that, that have been held on right choice voting is that it would be too costly to implement, first of all, and then too uh, difficult for uh a large block of voters to, to grasp. There's worries that there would be lots of mistakes on ballots and people feeling like uh, this is just too overwhelming of a change when, uh, you know, we've used, you know, one candidate winner take all method for, for, you know, <laughs> since statehood. So uh, there's uh, just concerns about the overall complexity of that. Now, what's the status of the bill that is proposing that ban? It passed through a House committee last week. This is a bill from Representative Eric Roberts of Oklahoma City. Uh, after passing the committee, it's eligible to be heard on the, the full House and then would be turned over to the Senate side if it, if it passes through the House. So uh, still in the initial stages, but did pass through a committee vote last week. Uh, what about other states? Are, are there uh, other states around the country that have implemented or talking about implementing similar bans? There are. Uh, there are some examples include Florida, um, Iowa, um, Tennessee, I believe, um, are all states that have passed a, a statewide ban on ranked choice voting in the past few years. Um, and this is following a push by some uh, national conservative interest groups that are um, rallying against ranked choice voting as as a voting method. Now, has any municipality, any local government in Oklahoma uh, tried to use a ranked choice system? They have not. Uh, our current fleet of voting machines in Oklahoma aren't capable of accommodating ranked choice voting. Uh, those machines were uh they, they're from 2012, so they're due for a replacement here in the next five years or so, according to the state election board. So there's a chance the new fleet of voting machines could accommodate ranked choice voting. Um, but right now, the, the current technology isn't, isn't capable of it. So uh, no municipalities have, have even started or trying to use it. 
How about uh, those in favor? We have any politicians, advocacy groups, anybody making noise in favor of ranked choice voting? Yeah, there are uh, a few people on the Democratic side. Uh, I know Representative Mickey Dollins from Oklahoma City has uh, been one of the the most outspoken advocates for it. Um, there's also been um, comments from the Stillwater Stillwater's Mayor Will Joyce um, saying that it could be beneficial in um, in local municipal elections. Um, you know some of the issues that. Um, you know, are statewide, but more localized um, and, and races there could could widen the pool of candidates and whatnot um, is his belief. Um, but the the tide in the in the legislature right now certainly seems to be shifting towards the uh, we don't like it side. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Uh, you can read Keaton's coverage of the bill that would ban ranked choice voting throughout the state and all his other work on democracy and criminal justice. You can find it at OklahomaWatch.org. While you're there, you can also sign up for Keaton's free weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. And she's here to talk about the state's second lawsuit against Class Wallet, which was dismissed almost immediately after it was filed. Jennifer, what is Class Wallet and why did the state sue them? The story goes way back to the um, COVID-19 pandemic. Um, these were uh, funds that Governor Stitt was allotted from the federal government, from Congress, um, and he started a variety of programs. One of the most problematic um, that we've now uncovered it was called Digital Wallet. Um, and the state hired Class Wallet, um, a Florida vendor, to manage that program and another. And, um, you know, we found um, a lot of misspending in that program, and the state has blamed the vendor for that. Now, your reporting uh, that you did along with the Frontier was the first to reveal some problems with these gear funds. And now several audits have backed that up. Uh, how much money are we talking about? Right. So, um, you know, we found hundreds of thousands of dollars in purchases that were not related to education. The money was supposed to be spent on, you know, school supplies, laptops for kids to learn from home, things like that. And, you know, we found um, lots of purchases, TVs, ring doorbells, things like that, that were not educational. Um, federal auditors took a look. They found or they questioned 650000 told the state they needed to do a better assessment of, of what was misspent. Um, and then the state auditor came out last year and they questioned over a million. It was about $1.7 in costs. So what happened with that first lawsuit? So the first lawsuit um, was filed... Um, and as soon as Gittner Drummond took office as the attorney general, that was one of the first things he did was dismiss that lawsuit, um, kind of famously called it, um, you know, wholly without merit, uh, basically said there was no, there was no ground for the state to sue that vendor. Now at the time Drummond said he was instead focusing an investigation on state actors involved in this. Has anything come of that? It really hasn't. Um, you know, this this program was managed by a nonprofit. 
Now, Superintendent Ryan Walters was the head of that nonprofit at the time. This was even before he was secretary of education, actually, was working on this contract. Um, and then there were, you know, a few folks in state agencies that had um, had made decisions that led to this um, this program having, you know, too too loose of oversight. I think is is kind of how auditors have described it. Um, so so yeah, that was that was dismissed um, as soon as Drummond took office. Now the second lawsuit, which was filed in January, did that make any different claims? Slightly different. It was mostly the same. Um, the second lawsuit did not um, have as a, a plaintiff the OEQA, which is a state agency that was involved in the contract. They left that out in the second lawsuit. Um, the The claim of breach of contract was pretty much the same in both. Um, now, for the second lawsuit, they did not file um, this claim that the uh, vendor fraudulently or negligently represented themselves. They, they didn't try that again in the second lawsuit. The second lawsuit was filed by a, by a private attorney. And uh, it, just for clarity, the first one was filed by John O'Connor, who was a STIT appointee. And then uh, Drummond dismissed that second lawsuit as well, right? He did. Yeah. Um, you know, it was it was filed by private attorneys. Um, what came out kind of when all this, um, uh, you know, became news a couple of weeks ago, uh, Governor Stitt had sent uh, Drummond a letter and asked him to refile the lawsuit. Um, and, you know, Drummond wrote back and said, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, there's not enough to go on here. Um, and both of those letters are, are in our story in full, you know, if anybody wants to read, um, those full letters. Um, but yeah, he, um, he, he took over basically, uh, used his authority as AG to take over the lawsuit and then dismiss it. So, uh, Governor Stitt hired private attorneys to file uh, this lawsuit when the attorney general declined to do so. And as soon as they did, the attorney general took it over and, uh, dismissed it. Uh, how much did the governor's office spend on private attorneys to do that? That was a question I had. So I filed an open records request with the governor's office. Um, I did get a copy of the contract where um, this attorney, Cheryl Plaxico, was set to make, you know, $325 an hour to work on this case. Um, but there were no invoices. So I, I'm not sure, um, at least as of the time that I asked, that she had never, never got paid. All right. What happens next? Um, you know, I, I mean, I think the lawsuit issue is over. The The main, you know, issue that's still kind of hanging out there is whether the state will have to repay the U.S. Department of Education. Um, last time I checked on that, they were still working with the state, um, but that may have been because of the lawsuit. So we'll see. I mean, that's definitely the biggest, the biggest issue is if the state has to repay it and where will that money come from? All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's coverage of uh, the class wallet case that's been going on for several years now, as well as her other investigative work on the topic of education in Oklahoma. You'll find it on our website, oklahomawatch.org. And while you're there, you can sign up for her free weekly newsletter, Education Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. 
This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.